Thank you for listening to this message from Rooted and Resolved. Take your Bibles this morning. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. If you have been here over the last few weeks, you know that I will not be in 1 Corinthians 15 long. I'll be here, and then we're going to jump around. This is not my, um, this is not my normal, right? Um, we have been looking at um, the five solas of the Reformation, and having doing that, we're, we're looking at a topic in Scripture more than looking at one particular passage. We're looking at what the Bible as a whole says about something rather than zeroing in on one particular passage. And so that's why there's so many verses of Scripture to look at, so many places in Scripture we want to be. All the Scripture will be on the screens today as I share with them. If you have not been with us to catch you up or to give you a summary, this is what we've looked at. The Protestant Reformation was a movement in the 1500s and 1600s where a group of men began to recognize moral corruption and doctrinal error within the Catholic Church. They began a protest in order to reform the church. This was not, they didn't stand up and, and leave the church. The idea was is that they wanted to speak up in order that the church would reform and repent of that wrongdoing and, and turn to biblical teaching. That did not happen. In fact, those men were excommunicated. They were um, excised from the church. And those men, um, that's where kind of Protestant religions come from. The Protestant Reformation was a protest of reform that led to their excommunication. And these guys, these reformers, we'll call them, really began to hold up five different teachings, five different doctrines that were very apparent in Scripture that were neglected or perverted by the Catholic Church. And those five doctrines are not things, it's very important you hear me, the five solas are not doctrines that these men came up with. They are five doctrines that are found in Scripture that those men highlighted in their teaching, that that really brought to to the surface when it was not being taught in their day. These solas, we call them, sola is just a Latin word for alone. And so the idea is, is that we are saved by... We talked about at the beginning by grace alone, right? Sola gratia, that we are saved by God's grace. We haven't done anything to earn God's love. We haven't done anything to merit our own salvation. This is solely because God is gracious that God gives and God moves in us. We talked about the second sola, which is sola fide. It is by faith alone that we are saved. Because God has acted in grace, we are to respond in faith. And that faith, that belief is what is required of us. It is not works by which we are saved, right? It's, not by, uh, it's, it's by grace alone, not merit. It's by faith alone, not works by, by which we earn our salvation. It's not by works. It is only by faith and belief in him. We looked last time we were together at the third sola, solus Christus. We are saved by Christ alone. There's no other mediator. We don't need another another pope or a priest or any other mediator, uh, Timothy's very clear that there's one mediator. Paul's very clear when he's writing to Timothy that, we're, that there's one mediator between God and man, and that is Christ Jesus. Today, we want to look at the fourth of those solas. We want to look at sola scriptura. This is scripture alone. It is by scripture alone that we know all this, right? Scripture is the basis. Scripture is the standard. These solas, these doctrines that these men were teaching, the things that they were asking the Catholic Church to, to uh, mention and to, and to preach and to, to support were not things that were just based on an opinion. Scripture alone must be the basis. Scripture, not the traditions of men, not what popes say or what the tradition of a church has been, but what Scripture alone says must be our only standard for salvation. So if you look at what we're building here, the one sentence would be, you and I are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone. This belief, even today, is prominent within the Catholic Church. Where Catholics, instead of reading their Bible, will many times listen to what the Pope or the church has to say on an issue. You don't look to what Center Grove 
is telling you if what Center Grove is telling you is different than here. This is the standard. Scripture alone is the standard for our belief. The doctrine of salvation must be based on the words of Scripture, not on the tradition of men. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to read the first four verses just to highlight this idea. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I have preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I have delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Note what Paul says. When I came to you, the message I preached was not a message that I came up with. When I came to you, the gospel message that I preached to you was the same gospel message that was delivered to me. And this gospel message that was delivered to me was the story of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And all of these things happened according to the scriptures. They didn't just happen as an event in, in you know, as far as current events go. It wasn't just a recent event in Christ's death. This had, this had been foretold in the scriptures of, of, of the Old Testament, God speaking through men and giving, laying this gospel out. You need to understand that when we say we hold to this book, it's really important to understand the mindset of where the reformers were versus where we are. Please don't take offense to what I'm fixing to say. But we treat these very poorly and we take these books for granted. I can walk through here through the week and there's Bibles sitting on pews. You might leave your Bible here and you may have another one at home. I'm not asking you to feel bad about that. What I'm saying is that's a concept that would be foreign to the reformers. You're sitting in pews where in front of you there is a copy of God's word between every hymnal. That would have been foreign to the reformers. Having a Bible in your house that is collecting dust somewhere, that would have been foreign to the reformers. In their day, the Bible, people did not have access to God's word the same way that they do now. In fact, in their day, the Bible was not even translated into English. The Bible that the priest read from in church on Sunday was in Latin, and it had been translated from the Greek and the Hebrew, and the priests understood how to read Greek and Hebrew and Latin, but any copy of God's Word, the people did not have access to it. This is very different from me and you. And the fact that we have a copy of God's word anywhere that we want it, we can even download it to the little device that we keep in our pocket and take it with us wherever we go. We can have seven different translations and have it all in our pocket. This, is, this was foreign to them. They did not have the same access to God's word. In fact, the Protestant Reformation was probably a result of the fact that more people had begun to have access to the Word of God. In 1516, the Greek New Testament was published by Erasmus. John Wycliffe, William Tyndale, these guys had in recent years, right around those Reformation years, um, John Wycliffe much earlier, and then William Tyndale right here in this same era, translating God's word into English and you being able to read that for yourself if you could read. If not, it was up to you to come to church and listen to me read and tell you what this book said. The luxury of reading it for yourself and understanding it and studying the Bible for yourself that was not the case when the reformers were teaching these things. So you might say, why were so many people duped by the doctrinal error and the moral corruption of the Catholic Church? They didn't know any better. They didn't know any better. This is what someone had told them. It was obvious, Surely it was based on Scripture. 
And the truth is, is that during that time, Martin Luther and the other reformers began to realize and see that what they were seeing in God's word did not match what was being taught in the church. Martin Luther, unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. This idea that the reformers begin to see that this, God's word, is our standard. And what men say, or even what men say about this word, can be wrong. But the word of the Lord stands forever. I want to give you four reasons today why we should hold to this idea of sola scriptura and why in the, in the light of everything that we hear about the Bible, um, that we should make it our standard. The first thing I want you to see is this. I want you to notice the author of Scripture. The first reason that we should hold to Scripture alone is because of the author of Scripture. We believe that the Bible is the Word of God. You may say, David, that is a silly thing for you to say. Hmm. David, isn't that very elementary? Don't we all know that? Neil, we don't, do we? This morning when I shared about what I was going to preach, praying with the deacons beforehand, Neil pulled up an article that you might have seen, a Nashville church, a Nashville pastor, that was kind of quoted in one of those sermons as saying, the Bible is not the word of God. These are all things that we've heard before, but this is recent right here in, in, in the news in the last week where a pastor in a church who claims to preach the Bible says, the Bible, it's not the word of God. Now, it's beneficial, and it's allegorical, and it's symbolic, and it's whatever, but it's not the word of God. That's what they would say, right? We believe this book to be the word of God. There is a divine author to Scripture. Now, I'm going to read um, 2 Timothy 3, and I'm going to read verse 16. And actually, um, Sarah, not to confuse you, but I'm, I'm just going to read part of this verse because we're going to focus on the second half in a minute. So look at 2 Timothy 3 and 16. Just notice the first part of this verse so we don't get lost in all the other words. The first part of this verse says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. Let's just stop there before we read anything else. Let's just note for this particular instance all Scripture is breathed out by God. It is the same word that is the idea of inspiration, this idea of breath, or it's inspired of God. That word inspire even has the, the idea of, of like breathing, right? To, to respire, to expire. All of these kind of words, kind of this idea of breathing, this is the idea that God has breathed this book, has breathed the words of this book, to men. Now hear me. We do not believe that God picked up a pen and paper and wrote these words onto paper. Okay? That's not what we believe. We believe that there are human authors of scripture. But those men were inspired of God. The words that they wrote were breathed out by God. They were led by the Holy Spirit. We also know that those men were not robots. It's not as if they were possessed by the Holy Spirit and began to ride in an out-of-body experience. Their personalities bleed through out on the page. If you look at 2 Timothy, I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. 2 Peter 1 talks about this idea of human authors. The Bible speaks of both. The one divine author who is using human authors, 2 Peter 1 and verse 20 reads, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is God inspiring men to write the words that they wrote. Their personalities are coming out on the page. We're talking about 40-plus men, over the, 40, around 40 men, over the course of 1,500 years or so from various cultures, from various backgrounds, from various time periods, writing in three different languages on several different continents, and yet this book has a continuity to it 
Because it is not 40 authors writing a book, it is one author using 40 men to write a word for me and you. This is the truth of Scripture, is that all of these books, the whole continuity of the book is pointing to the fact that Jesus Christ is the one who saves us. Jesus Christ, the redemption of our sins is found in Jesus Christ alone. That is the message of redemption that's found in this book. Those men are more like instruments in the hand of God. Now, we might hold on to a, you might go somewhere and find a, an inkwell and a, and a quill that, that Shakespeare wrote a play on, right? We might, we might say that that's, that's William Shakespeare's. Or we might find a typewriter that belonged to Ernest Hemingway. And we might put that in a museum somewhere, right? But even though we might look at those things, we would not credit the inkwell and the quill with the play nor would we credit the typewriter with the novel, right? We wouldn't do that. It's the author, and God is the author, using those men as instruments to pen the words that he inspired in them. The reason that we believe this is the word of God is because all scripture is breathed out by God. There's one divine author. See, the author of scripture, but I want to talk for a minute about the accuracy of scripture. We not only believe that the Bible is God's word, but we believe the Bible to be God's word without error. When we talk about the Bible not having errors, let's stop for just a minute and let's say that if we believe that this is God's word, we must believe that it is without error because God doesn't make mistakes. So the logic would be, If this is God's word and we know something about God's character, we believe that God doesn't tell a lie, that the Bible, that that God is not in error, that God is righteous and good and pure. And so because we believe all those things, we must believe that his word is sure. When we read in scripture, we find the Bible claiming to be certain things. For instance, The book of Psalms says that the Bible is perfect. Psalm 19 and verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The Bible says that the Bible is truth. In John 17 and 17, when Jesus is praying, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. The Bible says that the Bible is eternal. Psalm 119 in verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. We believe that the Bible is God's word. And because God is perfect, his word is perfect and good. Now here's what critics would say. Critics would say, well, the Bible can't be trusted because, the man you used to work with, you said this all the time. Oh, the Bible can't be trusted because, you see, the Bible was written by men. Well, we've kind of already addressed that, haven't we? Yes, the Bible was written by men, yes. But what was happening there is that God was inspiring those men to write. So what we believe is not that the Bible was written by a bunch of men and we revere those men and so we hold this scripture to be the standard for our life. No, no, no. We believe that God breathed out those words into, in, to inspire men to write them and so this is why we hold to these words because they are God's words. Critics would say, well, Bible can't be trusted because you see it's been translated and it's been copied and it's been passed down for so many years that it all can't be right. Something's gone missing along the way. You need to understand that we do not believe that every copy of the Bible is without error. You need to understand that. What we believe is that what God gave to those men is without error. You understand? There might be some issues. There might be a typo in your Bible. There might be some things in your Bible that are are translated wrongly. 
that are not accurately translated. Probably one of the most famous, that's one of my favorite ones to point out, is the Devil's Bible. The Devil's Bible was a, a printing of the Bible. It was a big typo, but it was a, it was a typo, but it was a big typo. Left out one word. It was known as the Devil's Bible because it said, thou shalt commit adultery. They left out one word, but that not was really important, right? And so, like, when you look at that, like, that Bible had an error. You see what I'm saying? We're not talking about that a copy of God's Word does not have error, that a translation of something is is bad or wrong, but what we believe for sure is that God is able to preserve His Word. And the people that talk about these issues with translation and it being passed down, I believe are often simply ignorant to the way that has happened through the years. I don't have time today to go into the idea of scholarship and go into the idea of, of, of how ancient documents are, um, are authenticated or to go into how um, the, the, the copies of the Bible that we had when compared to the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were much later and earlier. I don't have time to talk about how, all this, how the Dead Sea Scrolls confirmed the translations of Scripture that we have. I don't have time to go into all that today. Just know that when it comes to the scholarship and the study of how the Bible was passed from the original writers to us, many people who criticize and say, well, it can't be trusted because it's been passed down have not really done the work and studied. That's just most of the time that's the case. If you are interested in that, there are lots of books about it, many of them completely unreadable. But one of them that is readable is God. Josh McDowell has a book called God Breathed, and it is a very readable kind of book. It's also a book that kind of just gives some info as to how the Bible went from manuscripts to in our hands, okay? I don't have time to go into that, but that, that kind of argument, that same scrutiny that's applied to ancient texts, when it's applied to the Bible, the Bible is accurate. Many people say, well, the Bible can't be trusted. The Bible's, the Bible's full of errors. There's a lot of errors in the Bible. So you can't trust it, David. Many books have been written addressing those things that are perceived errors in the Bible. Um, Things like the Geislers, I think, have one talking about uh, difficult passages in God's Word. That's one of my favorites. Um, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology has a lot of things in it that that talk about the, the things that people perceive or when they say the Bible's full of errors, these are the things that they're mentioning, Right? And then talking about why those things are not, why those things are not in error, and why those things can be, cannot be trusted or can be trusted. Right? Those who have given serious study to the claims of Scripture can kind of see the the, the lack of logic in those attacks. I will tell you this: I am not a Bible scholar, but I can tell you this: that the more that I study of this book, the more I see continuity and not error. This is a book of continuity. It is a word that is accurate. And unlike the words of men who are flawed, the Bible is the word of God. It is accurate and without error. Let's talk for a minute about the authority of Scripture. We've seen the author of Scripture, the accuracy of Scripture. Let's talk for a minute about the authority of Scripture. When we look to God's word, if this is the word of God... And because it is the word of God, it is without error. It should be the standard for my living. If I do not give authority to it, believing it is the word of God and it is without error, then I am in error. The words of men or the traditions of a denomination cannot be the standard by which we hold. The way that we have always done things. What this person says regarding an issue cannot be the standard. The Bible is to be trusted over the words of men. It doesn't matter if those men are scientists or professors or critics or popes or preachers. The words of the Bible are to be trusted. Martin Luther, speaking on this issue of trusting the Bible over popes, say, Martin Luther said, I considered it proper that the words of Scripture in which the saints are described as being deficient in merits 
are to be preferred to human words in which saints are said to have more merits than they need. For the Pope is not above but under the word of God. In other words, if I were to stand here before you today as your preacher and I were to say, now listen here, you don't know what really the Bible says and you don't really understand it, so let me tell you what the Bible really says. If I were to kind of imply that, right, what I would be doing is I would saying that I had some sort of merit that you did not have in order to understand this word. That's not what the Bible tells me. The Bible tells me that if I'm a believer in Christ Jesus, I have the Holy Spirit living in me. If you're a believer in Christ Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. And when we read and study God's word, the Holy Spirit will illuminate in us God's message to us. This is the idea. Galatians 1, starting in verse 6, Paul wrote about this to the Galatians. Notice what Paul said. This is a good word. It's a good word for you to know about me. Paul wrote to the Galatians, let me, before I read this, let me, let me back up. The Galatians were dealing with this, with this issue. The Galatians were believers. It was a church who had trusted in Christ, but there was a group of people that had come in that had a Jewish background. And the Jude, the, these Judaizers, as they were called, said, look, you're not saved just by trusting Christ. You've got to become Jewish. You've got to be circumcised, eat all the right things, follow the right rituals, and trust Jesus, and then you'll be saved. Paul's writing and saying, no, 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 you're saved by Christ alone, and that's it. Notice what he says in Galatians 1, 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ Jesus and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. That's the Judaizers he's talking about. Then notice what Paul says in verse 8. But even if we... Or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. What's the gospel that he preached to them? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the scriptures. And he says, if anybody comes preaching to you a message other than that, do not trust them. He said, if I stand before you, are you listening to what I'm saying? If I stand before you and I preach something that is not here, don't listen to me. Don't listen to me. This is the standard. I am not. Popes are not. Paul knew that he was not. Paul knew that even if an angel from heaven began to preach something that was contrary to God's word, later would say, the devil can appear as an angel of light kind of thing, right? If it's contrary to God's word, it is not of God because God has spoken and God's words forever is fixed in the heavens. He is the standard. And the truth is, is that when I say that, you say, well, David, we're not dealing with Jewish people. or We're not dealing with, I don't understand what you're talking about. Let me tell you, whether you believe it or not, there are lots of people that hold other things in higher, give preeminence to other things more than God's word within the church. Be it Robert's rules of order, be it the constitution and bylaws of the church, be it the way grandma and grandpa did it. There are people that hold traditions and creations of men above the word of God. I had a preacher this week tell me that he was at a church, a previous church, and he began to share with them something, and he shared with the deacons, and one of the deacons got angry and said to him, I don't care what the Bible says, the Constitution and bylaws say. Mm, now you got a problem. Now you got a problem. In fact, you got to have a problem way back under somewhere, Right? You see, it's, it's not the traditions of men that we base our dealings on. Those things are not the standard. All of those things are subject to fail. All of those things are subject to be flawed because they are created by people and all of us are flawed. If you hold me as the standard as your preacher, why in the world would you come and listen to me? Look, not, like I said before, this is not my normal thing to share the whole of what Scripture says about a topic and pull from all these places in Scripture. If you've been at Center Grove for very long, you know that most Sundays I walk in here, I tell you a passage, we read through that passage, and we stay there. And we constantly keep coming back to this. I don't read that passage and then rant for 30 minutes I don't, about something that's not related. I don't read that passage and then us talk about 
how to balance your checkbook or how to be a better daddy or whatever else and give you my advice and my opinions on those things. My advice and opinion on those things, well, it's not often wrong, but, <laughs> but sometimes, sometimes I'm wrong. There was this time back in 1997 that, uh, that <laughs> I am, why would you come and listen to me? Why would you come and listen to me talk about anything? If I don't preach this, what do I have to preach? What is there to listen to? What is the standard? What is the authority? Why would you listen to what David Brown says at all? Because I'm just as screwed up as you are. What right? <laughs> We needed a or we needed some organ music right there, didn't we? We need a little organ music on that one. Uh, what what reason would you listen to me? Right? This is the standard for us. Christ taught the authority of Scripture. Paul taught the authority of Scripture. It, the, people in the early church recognized this as 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 Scripture, as the Word of God. Charles Spurgeon, speaking about Christ and Paul and that kind of idea, said evidently Christ and Paul regarded the statements of Scripture as conclusive. They took counsel of the Scriptures. So that ended the matter. It is written was to them proof positive and indisputable. Thus saith the Lord was the final word, enough for their mind and heart, enough for their conscience and understanding. To go behind Scripture did not occur to the first teachers of our faith. They heard the oracle of divine testimony, bowed their heads in reverence. So it ought to be with us. We have erred from faith, and we shall pierce ourselves through with many sorrows unless we feel that if the Scripture saith it, it is even so. It is written, thus saith the Lord, that's the end of the matter. If I add things to or I take away from Scripture... That's a problem. And when I give an analogy that I think is that I, that I think works, or when I give an illustration that I think works, but it is uh, contrary to Scripture, I am in error. I've done that before. I've done that before with you sitting in this room. Kicked myself later, but I've done it. The early church recognized the words that were spoken. They would talk about the Holy Scriptures. It's the Old Testament. But they even talked about what was given from the apostles as being Scripture. As being not just, in other words, back to the Galatians. When the Galatians received a letter from Paul, they did not believe that that letter was just from Paul. They recognized that this was the Word of God to them. The Bible is our authority for good reason. The Bible does a lot of things. The Bible is so important for us. The Bible convicts us of sin and reveals God's will to us. This is why it must be the authority to us. Cody already read from Hebrews 4, but let's read that again. Notice what Hebrews 4 and verse 12 says. The word of God is living and active. Stop right there. The Word of God is not a dead, dusty, old book. It's not an archaic piece of... Yes, they are ancient words, but they are not just ancient words. They're ancient words breathed out by God. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to give the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. In other words, when I read the Bible, the Bible is not just a dead book. The Bible is living and active, and the Bible can speak to me. The Bible can reveal sin in my heart. It can convict me of sin. I can read Scripture and see not only what is happening in the story or what is being said in the passage, but I can read Scripture, and God can use that to speak directly to what's happening in my heart at the moment. It's like a double-edged sword that divides. The way you would cut in a sword would divide 
uh, flesh from bone and, and would cut even down to the marrow. This says the Bible gets to the very thoughts and to the very intentions of my heart. It knows the very depths of me. God is re- using Scripture to reveal to me what he knows. It's the search me kind of idea, right? That God knows all of that, and so it is living and active. Adrian Rogers says this, talking about that passage that says that the, it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Adrian Rogers says, The purpose of man's sword is to strike a living man and make him dead. The purpose of God's sword is to strike a dead man and make him alive. And so the idea here is that when I am spiritually dead in my sin, it is through the reading of God's word that God reveals to me the sin of my life. As a believer in Jesus Christ, because it is living and active, it speaks to me as I read his word and I study it. And it begins to show me places where I'm not like him. It is a mirror, the Bible says, that shows me who I am in light of who God is. This is why it is the authority. This is why it's by scripture alone. Listen, I don't have words that can do that. I don't have a story that can do that. I don't have a I don't have an illustration or example to do that. It is here is what will be is where our sin will where we will be convicted of our sin is through the reading of his word because it is living and active and touching us. The Bible not only reveals our sin to us like that's the bad, right? What the Bible does is it shows us our sin, yes, but the beauty of that is the Bible also tells us the story of Jesus who shows and shows us our need for him. 2 Timothy 3 and 14, Paul writes to Timothy and says, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and, and how from childhood you became acquainted with the sacred writings. What is that? That's Holy Scripture. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The Scriptures teach you how you can be saved. The, te- the, the Scriptures show you the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The scriptures show you how those things were foretold and pictured and symbolized in the Old Testament, how they came to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ in the Gospels, and how the early church began to be filled with the Holy Spirit and preached that message of salvation and it spread around the world. The Bible also tells us how we will be made glorified in the end and how we will be with him forever. The scriptures make us wise for salvation. They teach us about the thing that we need, which is Jesus. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of God, by the words of Christ. Listen, it's great. Cody, don't take offense. I know you won't. It's great if we have a singing service It's great if we have people, you know, if we just had music and we just had musicians come in. But Cody and I have an understanding that on Sunday morning, the scriptures will be preached. If we have a cantata, okay, I may preach for 10, 15 minutes. (laughs) But the word of God will be preached, right? We may have special singers come in and, and sing on Sunday morning. The word of God will be preached because the Bible doesn't say that it's through the singing of songs that a person comes to faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God because it's the scriptures that make us wise to salvation. It's the scriptures that are living and active and cutting us down to the very thoughts and intentions of our heart. It must be scripture that we read because scripture is what tells me and you that we can never be good enough. Scripture is what tells us that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Scripture is what tells us that none of us are righteous, not even one of us. That our righteousness is like filthy rags before him. That's what Scripture tells us. And not only does it say, you are sinful and there is no hope. The Scriptures say, you are sinful, but there is hope. He demonstrated his love in this, that while you were sinners, Christ died for you. That while the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. 
It not only presents the problem, it gives the solution in Jesus Christ. If you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. All those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Bible is not only showing us our our sin and our need for him, it's showing us the one who we need, Jesus Christ. As a believer in Jesus Christ, I know that it was the words of Scripture that convicted me to come to him. Listen, if you're here today and you don't know him as Lord and Savior, and in a minute we sing a song and you come down and you pray and you ask Jesus to come into your heart, you will not come down here and give your heart to Jesus because I gave you a clever sales pitch. Because I ain't a salesman. And it's not going to be clever. And it's not going to be smooth. If you come today and you give your heart to Jesus... It will be because the Holy Spirit has used the words of Scripture to speak to your heart. It is never my intention, and I go to great pains to never emotionally manipulate those listening to a sermon. Because I don't want you to respond because I give you a tearjerker of a story. I want to know that you have come because you heard Scripture. And the Holy Spirit spoke to your life. God used the words of Scripture, and it did not go out in vain. But that it found a lodging place in your heart. And he spoke to you, and you responded to him. And that may be you today. As a believer in Jesus Christ, once I come to him, I also trust the Bible as my authority because the Bible guides me in life. Psalm 119 and 105. This sounds familiar. Maybe we sang this. Your word is a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path. As I'm out here stumbling around in this dark world, I need a way to see where I'm going. I need a way to see the path on which I'm on. And what does the Bible do for me? It illuminates the path that I should walk. The Bible is God's word to guide us. And the Bible, when it is applied to our life, is completing or perfecting us. Back to 2 Timothy 3. We read the first part. Let's read the second part. All scripture is breathed out by God. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It does those four things in us. That the man of God, that the woman of God may be complete, perfected, equipped for every good work. The Bible not only guides me, the Bible grows me. The Bible helps me, it gives me instruction. When I err, it corrects me. It rebukes me and and reproves me so that I can grow in Christ and be fully equipped for every good work. This is what he is doing in me. It is the authority. It is the standard. It is the measuring stick. Without it, I have nothing to preach. See, the author of Scripture, the accuracy of Scripture, the authority of Scripture. Let's talk a little bit about the attacks against Scripture. I will be quick, but then I have a long story, so (laughs) we'll see. I've already covered some of the attacks that people give, so without going into detail on those, I've already said what some critics will say about the Bible, right? But you need to understand that the Bible will always be attacked, The first attack on God's word came in Genesis 3 when the serpent said to Eve, did God really say that if you eat of the tree, you will surely die? Did God really say? Now, let's be honest. Every attack on Scripture that has ever come since then has looked like that. Did God really say? If the Bible's full of errors, as everybody claims, I mean, it's just known. 
did God really say? If the Bible has been translated and it's been processed and printed and handed down over the years, did God really say? If the Bible was written by men that are flawed, did God really say? The attacks on Scripture are varied. Here's what some of them are. Well, you see, the Bible borrowed. See, the Bible's got a lot of stories in it, David, that are, that are actually older than the Bible. And so the Bible borrowed a lot of these things. David, don't you know that Noah's not really a story about Noah and God um, protecting Noah and his family? That's the epic of Gilgamesh, David. Don't you know that the, the things that surround the birth of Jesus, don't you know that all those things are the same kind of stories of other Messiah-like figures from back there? David, all that's just borrowed stuff. David, don't you know that the creation account that you find in Genesis, that's just like, that's what people believed in the Near East at the time, David. This is no different than what lots of other, this is just one theory out of a bunch of them about the beginning of the world, David. Did God really say Here's one. Here's an attack on the scripture. All this right here was written by well-meaning people. Well-meaning people who uh, ate the wrong mushroom and had a hallucinogenic experience. And those psychedelic experiences, those visions that they had that produced a flame out of a bush or a chariot or a figure with four heads, well, all that stuff, David, that was a, that was a bad trip that somebody wrote down. That's all that was. Many people will say, as probably our preacher friend in Nashville who said the Bible isn't the Word of God. Well, this, see, David, what this is is, this is like allegories. It's like, um, it, you can't take it literally, David. It's all symbols. And it's all stories with a moral. You know, like, uh, you know Aesop's fables? It's kind of like that, David. It's not really real. And the word of God continues to be attacked. Voltaire, French philosopher, 1776. 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible in earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. The Bible's done. Who believes the Bible anymore? The critics say this all the time. Now, the critics today purport the reason and logic of postmodernism. You can't believe the Bible. Are you kidding me? You still believe that book? Academia. The attacks against it far and wide in academia. But you don't have to sit in a college classroom to hear the Bible attacked. Turn on your radio. Turn on the TV. Our popular culture attacks this book. You know Sturgill? I like Sturgill Simpson. But you know Sturgill? Uh, every time I go and take a look inside that old and fabled book, I'm blinded and reminded by the pain that's caused by some old man up in the sky. Don't waste your mind on nursery rhymes, <laughs> right? Fairy tales of blood and wine. It's turtles all the way down the line. You just turn it on. Just listen for a little bit. And they will tell you over and over again, this cannot be trusted. I've read this book for a long time, and I don't know if you know it or not, but I'm very passionate about it and what it says. In fact, I would dare you to find something that I am more passionate about than this book. Amy can tell you. Amy, is there another thing that I talk about that I talk about with the same passion that I talk about this? Some people, it's NASCAR. Some people, it's Hunt. Some people, it's Georgia Bulldogs football. There's not another thing that I'm more passionate about than this book. 
Listen. You will hear the attacks. The Bible's going to be attacked from all sides. But every one of those attacks is just the devil saying, did God really say? And if you step back from it from half a minute and you just look at it, from an, not from an emotional spot, step back from it and just look at it. That's what every one of those attacks are. And attacks on the word of God are very dangerous. I'm not saying turn Sturgill Simpson off your radio. I'm saying listen to Sturgill Simpson and know what he's saying. And say, the, the, that's what this song says. This is what the word of God says. This is what I know to be true. Redeem that song. Redeem that movie. Redeem that TV show. Jerry Vine says on this attacking, this idea of attacking God's word, he says to mess with the Bible is like poisoning medicine for a dying man. It's like polluting the bread of a hungry man. It's like corrupting the water of a thirsty man. If you undermine the message of this book, you have done eternal damage to the souls of people. To say that the words of men are equal to or superior to the word of God is an attack on this book. And the reformers recognize that. Critics will always have criticism. The attacks will always come. But 1 Peter 1 and 24 gives us some good words. All flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. I do have a story that I will try to tell quickly. But this story sums up the idea of what the reformers were experiencing, how we should value the Bible, and how precious the words of Scripture are. It's a story about William Tyndale. I think I have a picture of him for you. William Tyndale was born in 1485. Smart guy. Went to Oxford, went to Cambridge. Really excelled when it came to languages. Spanish, German, um, Italian, French, Greek, Hebrew, Latin. Really excelled in languages. Now, prior to William Tyndale, back in the 14th century, there was a guy named John Wycliffe. And John Wycliffe translated the Bible into English back in the 14th century. All of it was handwritten. It was his work. That was condemned by the Catholic Church when John Wycliffe did it. And the, it, there were very few copies, but many of those were rounded up and burned by the Catholic Church. They issued an edict in 1408 where the Catholic Church banned all unauthorized translations of the English Bible. Now, we talked about that before, but I want you to think about for a minute, why would that be the case? Why would the, why would the church make a rule that the Bible shouldn't be translated into a language, a language that was common among the people? In 1408, a hundred years before Luther did anything, there was already this idea that you don't need to know what it says. Just trust us, we'll tell you what it says. This bothered William Tyndale. He had a strong desire to translate the Bible into English. Just like Wycliffe had done. He voiced that. He openly shared that that's what he wanted to do. And there was a meeting that was called. At the course of the meeting, this is what one man said. We had better be without God's laws than the Pope. Do you know what that statement says? I don't care what the Bible says, the Constitution and bylaws say. To which William Tyndale responded, I defy the Pope and all his laws. And if God spares my life ere many years, I will cause the boy that driveth the plow to know more of the scriptures than thou dost. 1523, he goes to London. He went to London to hunt up a guy called Bishop Tunstall. Bishop Tunstall had helped Erasmus. I mentioned that Erasmus had had published a Greek New Testament, and Bishop Tunstall had been a part of that. And so William Tyndale goes to him thinking, well, he will be open to an English translation of the Bible. He'll give me some help. 
That didn't happen. Tyndale worked on his own. Went, I want to say, to Germany to um, find a, a press where he could publish his work. And in 1526, Tyndale printed 6,000 copies of the Old Testament. Those 6,000 copies of the Old Testament scattered all over England and Scotland. The church was furious. In fact, all those books, they tried to round them up. They tried to round them up, burn them, destroy them. The uh, Archbishop of Canterbury was so upset by all these translations that he said, I will pay, if you turn into me one of these Tyndale Bibles, I will pay you a large amount of money. And so the supporters of William Tyndale would take their Bibles, sell them to the Archbishop of Canterbury for this exorbitant amount of money. They would take that money and give it right back to William Tyndale who would produce more copies of the Bible. The Catholic Church was unknowingly helping fund the production of these Bibles into English. Through that whole time, he continued to work. Not only later on, he, he had done the New Testament first, but the Old Testament he began to work on. And in 1530, he completed the first five books of the Old Testament. And God protected William Tyndale the entire time until all of Scripture was translated into the English language. Now, to kind of zip the story along, there was a man who pretended to be William Tyndale's friend. He was staying with him near Brussels. And while he was in that guy's home, that guy ratted him out, and they came and they arrested William Tyndale. And he spent 18 months in prison in Philfort Castle near Brussels. The whole time, it was a string of priests that would come in, a string of church officials that would come in, recant. Just, just say that you shouldn't have done all this. Just recant, and, and it'll be forgiven. We can move on. We can move on with everything. It didn't happen. He refused to recant. In fact, he maintained this Christ-like love for those who had imprisoned him, all of his accusers. This is what he wrote to one of them. Christ is the cause why I love thee, and I'm ready to do the uttermost of my power for thee, and why I pray for thee. And as long as the cause abideth, so long lasteth the effect, and even as it is always day, so long as the sun shineth. Christ's love keeps me praying for you even though you have imprisoned me. In August of 1536, William Tyndale was officially stripped of his title. They went through this weird ceremony. They dressed him up in priestly garments, and they ripped them off of him. They took the uh, elements of, of, of uh, communion and placed them in his hands and jerked them away. Like, you're, you're not fit to, to perform the ordinances of the church anymore. They placed them there quickly and snatched them away. Like, you're not able to do this anymore. They took a knife and... Um, and uh, a piece of glass and scraped the skin from his hands because his hands had anointing oil on them. He had used that anointing oil and they wanted to get any that was on his hands and any that would have seeped into under his skin and they scraped the skin from his hands. They sent him back to his cell. He stayed another two months. It was in October of that same year, 1536, that they led him to a wooden stake in a clearing outside Philfort Castle in Brussels. They chained his torso and legs to the stake. They began to pile logs and brushwood around the base of the stake, and they asked him to recant. He was silent. But even as they began to pile those logs around him, he prayed. Lord, Open the eyes of the king of England. They hung him and burned him. They scraped the skin from his hands. But they were not able to destroy the work that God had used those hands for. 90% studies show this. I'm not just pulling it out of the air. 90% of the King James Bible that you might hold in your hand today is directly copied from Tyndale's translation. He loved the Word of God. 
And he wanted as many people as possible to read it, to know how it convicts of sin, how it leads us to Christ, how it guides us, how it is the authority for our life, how it is equipping us. And some of the most famous words that we know, right? Tyndale didn't write these words, right? God breathed these words to men who wrote them. But Tyndale gave them to us in words that we understand, in phrases that are familiar to us. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, just as Tyndale translated it. Tyndale's story shows the enduring power of the word of God. That's why I wanted to share it with you. But if I have to leave you with something, I would leave you with the words that Peter wrote, that Tyndale, that Tyndale translated. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like to find more resources to help you grow in your walk with Christ, check out our website at rootedandresolved.org.